Okay, everyone, welcome, welcome to show 15 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia, joined by Fernando Ulrich in Brazil. Fernando, what's up? Hey, Matthew, how are you? Doing fine. Today, we're going to introduce Rodolfo Novak from Brazil. Rodolfo is a Bitcoin entrepreneur and has founded a variety of interesting projects, such as BTC Look, Open Dime, and CoinKite, among others. He is currently based in Toronto. Rodolfo, welcome to Crypto Voices. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for being here. Um, so let's just uh, start broadly. You have, you have had a long and storied history. I think most people in the Bitcoin space will know you uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, everything from evangelizing to uh, what, I, what I see is commercializing Bitcoin's killer app, which is money. So it's really interesting. And uh, just maybe to start, tell us a little bit, a little bit about your journey and um, how, how you got started. Sure. Um, so I've, I've been involved in tech and making things in tech for, you know, quite some time. And uh, in, I'd say, 2010, I think, uh, my business partner, Peter, uh, bumped into the Satoshi paper on the Slashdot. And uh, he forwarded to me and I read it and, you know, it sounded like, you know, this is insane. It'll never work. <laughs> and... Uh, and then, uh, you know, we started sort of looking more into it and following and joined the IRC for Bitcoin and sort of like, you know, started playing with it. And I think in 2011, we, uh, we decided to, to do the best thing you can do to try to understand something. So you build a project on top of it. <laughs> and that was BTC Look. It was just this cool sort of visualization of the blockchain and you could follow the transactions, kind of like a fancy explorer. Um, and that sort of helped us understand how the tech actually works, right? Because it, it was not obvious and still not very obvious to most people. Um, and in those days, you know, like Bitcoin was worth essentially nothing. Uh, you know, it was this fringe, cool thing to play around. And, uh, and then we were like, okay, great. This is very cool stuff. Let's, let's make something that makes money on top of this. <laughs> And uh, that was sort of like how we started the payment terminals and CoinKite and every other project that came after that. If you could look back to those early days, you know, from 2012, 2013 uh, or 2011, um, and, and thinking about the projects that you did start, um, I understand, I, th I think you have a web wallet, which is no longer active for, um, and, and some such as uh, the Open Dime uh, USB stick, which is uh, very interesting. But, uh, you know, is there anything that caught you by surprise? I guess just, um, you know, obviously it seems like you've just done a lot of very interesting uh, projects to help people learn about how to use Bitcoin, how to spend Bitcoin, how to use it as money. Uh, you know, looking back, uh, is there anything that caught you by surprise uh, if you look at sort of the landscape of where we are today? I think everything is surprise in Bitcoin. It's, a, it's sort of like a never boring kind of space, right? Like everything is always changing under your feet. And the protocol was, especially back then, was sort of like always sort of changing and improving and, and more things were being added. But what was kind of fascinating to me was how easy non-legacy financial systems people got it. Right. Like every time we were making a product or trying to explain Bitcoin to somebody who had a lot of understanding about finance and money, 
they just couldn't get it, right? Like it just it didn't make any sense. But every time you talk to somebody who does payday loans or who talk or, or does like cash transactions or, uh, you know, like uh, payments on the internet, like it, it was obvious to them, I mean, this is perfect. This just works. Um, I, I think that to me was sort of like the main, uh, main thing. It was just very easily explain Bitcoin to people that already deals with money. <laughs> Regarding remittances, uh, I've, I've heard you speak about that uh, in your business before. Um, how, how, did you, how did you feel that that uh, sort of sector and Bitcoin serving it has grown? Do you think it's uh, sort of on pace for what you projected or is it higher or lower than it could be? It's it's impossible to measure, and that's sort of amazing and awful. <laughs> um, everything around Bitcoin is, is is essentially impossible to measure, and and that makes it very hard for people like us to talk about it. Um, I remember when we decided to make the payment terminal, which was the first sort of like a for profit project we made for Bitcoin. And that payment terminal was not meant for people to buy things at the store. It was meant to replace Western Union. We wanted to have little terminals in every convenience store in the world where people could go and use that in a trusted way uh, to buy and send Bitcoin through the convenience store uh, cash like system they already had. Um, and then we sort of saw a lot of uptake on that and uh, and then we sort of like okay, great let's make this available to North Americans as well because see I guess I guess we have to go back here a little bit so Bitcoin is different things to different people and that to me is with most of the people that talk about Bitcoin miss so when you're talking about Bitcoin to North Americans you know, Bitcoin is this cool value store. It's this, uh, you know, fun thing to play with. But, you know, living in Canada, I don't really need Bitcoin to buy stuff, right? I mean, you know, Amex gives me, you know, a great uh, miles and and it's super easy to use. And, you know, it's cheap. Credit cards here are super cheap. Interest rate is super cheap. So Bitcoin for me here is, is, you know, it's this great value store to hedge against the dollar, to buy things from other countries. You know, when we pay our factory in China, it's a good way to do that. So we don't have to go through, you know, um, uh, wire transfers and all that crap. And uh, also when we are selling products to people in other countries, we don't have to worry about chargebacks. So accepting Bitcoin is fantastic as a North American. Now, as a Brazilian, it's a totally different story, right? Like there's there's very low uh, volume in Brazil, so the price is much higher, the spread is super big. But in Brazil, you have you know monetary issues, you have um, you have capital flow controls. So for a Brazilian person, Bitcoin has a, a much better use in their way of you know moving capital around the world, or you know hedging against their own currency. If you're in Asia, that's different again. So in Asia, it's actually fairly easy to move money around there. But, you know, if you're a Filipino uh, a nanny in Toronto and you want to send money to your family in the Philippines, you know, then you have to pay Western Union 30%, you know, in the total aggregate fees on both sides and fixed fees there, there. You're always talking, looking at like, you know, 20, sometimes 30%. 
and, uh, and Bitcoin now for you is a great remittance system. So it's very hard to talk about Bitcoin in specific use terms for every body as a general thing. And I think that's sort of like where we're at now. Um, remittance is growing a lot. I talk to people in, um, you know, who, who do run remittance companies in South Asia, you know, they're really seeing uptake on that. And then when you look in India, it's growing a lot. Uh, in Brazil, I see a lot of the exchanges sort of growing as a way to just people do value store. Um, and that's, that's sort of where it's at. Yeah, it, you, uh, you reminded me of something regarding sort of the gradient of uh, people's uses for Bitcoin as money. Um, you know, I'm based in, in Eastern Europe and the Baltics. And um, when you're talking about, you know, how Amex and, and, and all these credit card companies, Capital One in, in North America, it's just so easy you know, to pay, you know, these uh, NFC type payment ways. Even people just tap their credit card and, uh, and then they're, you know, they're off and they get, you know, great, great discounts, you know, two to three percent or more. And even here, I can see in Eastern Europe, just in this you know, current banking world, there's a disparity. I was asking someone here, you know, what, what sort of points do you get for your American Express or your, your Visa? And they're, and they're like thinking about it and they're like, you know, movie tickets. <laughs> so I was like, I was really uh, just laughing at that one because, you know, the market is so deep in, in North America, even in the current developed financial system that Americans and Canadians, they just don't think about you know, some of the benefits, specifically remittances and, and just all the other benefits that are going to come in these developing countries. And even in Eastern Europe, I mean, the benefits aren't really uh, that amazing to use uh, current, you know, legacy financial payment system. So it's just, it's interesting that there's a gradient uh, in so many levels. And obviously, like you said, when you get to more, more developing countries still, uh, the, the really, the need is there. That's right. And, and, then, and then on the other side, when you look at uh, being able to sell things, you know, PayPal has uh, a list of countries that, you know, internally some people refer as the shit list, <laughs> where you have 70 countries that they just don't do business with. So me as a Canadian company trying to sell hardware to all these countries, I, I, I just can't. And if I do, I'm on the hook for all the, the chargebacks, you know, that there's, it's true that there's a lot of countries where you're going to get chargebacks because that's the countries that, you know, the bad guys that often live in the other countries, um, we use to do the transactions on the fake credit cards or the, the stolen credit cards, right? Now, with Bitcoin, I, I can sell stuff to any place in the world and never get a chargeback. It really sort of returns the, the power to a place where it should be, right, in terms of uh, the, the power dynamic between buyer and seller. Um, you know, I, I don't have to do fraud. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, and, uh, you know, with PayPal as well, I'm on the board of a charity over here in Eastern Europe, and um, uh, it's, it's a well-named, you know, known-named charity. It's Ronald McDonald House Charities uh, in Latvia. And we have had just numerous problems with PayPal, just you know, having our account blocked for no reason, you know, but that's a whole other story. But I had one more question uh, before we hand it off to Fernando. I want to ask you about Open Dime. Uh, I always thought this was such an interesting product. I've never used it. It certainly seemed interesting, uh, in, I guess, in my view, for people in the developing world, sort of a, a physical... Oh, Matthew, j just let me stop you. You have to use it, <laughs> really. <laughs> Please do. It's, it's really, really amazing. I, I, uh, Sorry I need to interrupt. To. I need to. You're on. absolutely right. But uh, can you just explain to our listeners what 
what is uh, the Open Dime product and, and uh, what is the current state of it? Sure. So how about I start how we started this? Um, so a few years ago, we were, you know, we, we, we have a bench full of prototypes for all kinds of stuff, right? Uh, we wanted to make a hardware wallet to go along with our systems. And uh, we kept on playing with it, playing with it. And, you know, there's two other hardware wallets that are fairly good in the market. And, uh, and I was sort of thinking, like, how can we make a cheap, disposable, trustable paper wallet? Right, and we, we experimented with like using uh, metal coins with some clever cryptography, laser etched into the coins, and we tried to use you know metal stamping and all kinds of weird sort of solutions to make a paper wallet that sort of that can be used as money. Because that's the only sort of like last mile on Bitcoin that was never touched, right? Like, because you can't. When you have a paper wallet, you can't trust it to somebody else because the originator knows the private key and that screws up everything, right? So a paper wallet is great. It essentially should be called a backup, not a wallet. But but anyway, so we we kept on experimenting with like chips and, and sort of like how we could make it very cheap. And uh, we figured, you know, after a few tries and all, we, we sort of created this, this version of the Open Dime that we actually made public and started to sell. It's, it's essentially a verifiable, trustable way of doing off-chain transactions. It's, it's real Bitcoin because there is a private key there, there is a Bitcoin transaction that went in there, but the originator does not know the private key but yet is verifiable and we can prove that we created the key for the person. So after all this complicated explanation, it's all that OpenDime is, is a, a physical version of Bitcoin, but cryptographically verifiable. So you buy one, you load Bitcoins in it, and you give it to somebody else and they can trust that the Bitcoin is in there and that you cannot steal it back. So. Now you can compound this interaction by giving to the next person, the next person, the next person. So let's say Joe has 10 open dimes in his hands. Each one of them has 100 bucks worth of Bitcoin in them, right? He wants to buy a computer off of some guy on Craigslist. So he meets at Starbucks. The guy wants 300 bucks. So he picks three open dimes and he just gives it to the guy. And there is no waiting for transactions. There's nothing. It's, uh, and if the guy doesn't trust Joe, he can just check the open dimes on his computer to make sure the money's there. But that's it. Move on. And then the seller, let's say his name is David. David wants to go and, and buy something else. He goes and he passes along those open dimes again and again and again and again. But this was only one Bitcoin transaction. You only pay blockchain fees once, but you can keep on moving it with zero transaction times. Now, Let's say that the last person there wants to load those Bitcoins into an exchange to convert into fiat. That's very easy. You just poke the chip out with a little pin and then you plug it into your computer and load the Bitcoins into any wallet and you're done. You have Bitcoins in an exchange. Rodolfo, I mean, it's, to use OpenDime is really amazing. I remember when I interviewed in my channel in Portuguese and I, and I think it was maybe a couple of months or three months ago, and I, before, well, when we did the interview, 
I still hadn't used OpenDyne. And we did the interview and I published and then I realized, well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the guy that created this, this amazing device. I have to use it. And when I did use it, it was it's such an incredible experience because it, it really is very easy and it works. And, and my question is, now that you've created, it's, it's over a year that OpenDime is, is out, right? Uh, I think it's actually just shy of a year. It's a, only seven months or something. When you created it, did you have a specific target audience in mind? And do you have one now? Or is, it, is there any way to, to have a... a so, so this is the thing about Bitcoin, right? Like everything we do it, in Quinkite is um, we understand that nobody knows what the hell Bitcoin is going to be used for in large scale. <laughs> so anybody that claims that they know things about Bitcoin is completely either out of their minds or lying. Like, Bitcoin is this thing that we're still figuring out what it's going to be used for. It's kind of like the electricity on the beginning. You know, yeah, look, you can shock things. You can kind of light a lamp or people are very confused and sort of like, you know, the, the obvious sort of things that seem obvious is what you attack first, but, but that ends up being used completely differently, right? Like who would have thought electricity would have been used to do mathematics? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, 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 uh, it kind of goes back to, you know, like if you ask, you know, if you ask somebody, you know, like what kind of horse do they want? They're going to just say a faster horse instead of a car, right? It's, it's very hard to tell. So when we create these things, we think in terms of how money works. Money is used for everything and, for, and by everybody. There is no such thing as money for this thing or money for that thing. So we created OpenDive in the most general purpose way we could. And, you know, who knows, maybe we'll change even further. But the idea was anybody, anywhere, in any language, you know, with any computer could use it. Yeah, and speaking for myself, nowadays I do use OpenDime as a very safe way of storing part of my Bitcoin wealth. That's how I use it today. Make sure you back it up. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. There's no, if if you don't if you don't uh, break the seal, there's no way to exactly. If so, you lose one, you, you lose everything. I know, I, I know how it works. <laughs> yeah, cold storage, back it up. If it's for transaction, don't don't unseal it. <laughs> are there any specific geographies uh, that are that are ordering this more? Uh, do you see that it's uh, being used at least today in a different way, perhaps than you thought? Or it's kind of fascinating. It's been following the same sort of adoption rate as as uh, the terminals were at the beginning. Uh, it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's all over the place. You know, we would get like, you know, a thousand order for, you know, US and then you get a thousand order for, you know, like someplace in Europe and then you get a thousand order for someplace in the Middle East. And then it, it, it's, it, you know, and then users buying units is also all over the place. It, there really is no rhyme or reason. Of course, countries that have more money order more. But if you discount just uh, you know, acquisition power, it's pretty even. Now changing the subject a little bit and, and going to the whole scalability debate and how, to, and how to advance Bitcoin and make it better and improve the protocol and so on. And for me, it's, and I think for everyone, is 
Bitcoin is always a learning experience and the journey always makes you realize how you thought you knew, but you don't, you didn't really know how Bitcoin works. And one of, one of the things that made me realize this was studying the whole hard fork and soft fork and segregated witness. And now with the hard fork, we, we had the, the creation of Bitcoin Cash and the perhaps upcoming fork of Segwit2x. Now, my general question to you would be, it seems to me somebody or some one of the party is either underestimating or overestimating the risks of hard forks and so and and the and the and the issue of breaking backwards compatibility. What, what do you think of this? Um, the, by the way, the block size debate is something that's actually years and years old. It's just that it was never settled way, way back then and still sort of looms around today. The, the, the main problem is incentives, right? First, for you to truly understand Bitcoin, you can only do that if you're an engineer. And that sort of messes up things because then engineers don't talk about things on podcasts and on Twitter, right? The, the people who talk about things on podcasts and Twitter are, you know, business people, marketing people, uh, other people who are not necessarily top engineers, right? So what happens is you already have, you know, uh, a broken telephone there where the people who truly understands the thing are not the people talking about it. And then the people on the second layer of understanding don't have a full understanding. And then what seems obvious to them or common sense are often the wrong answers. <laughs> and that's why you have so many people making all these comments and, and, and sort of don't understand the consequences of increasing the block size. And, and increasing the block size decreases fungibility. And fungibility is the single most important feature of Bitcoin, if not the most important feature and everything else is uh, 10 times less important. Without fungibility, you don't have a reason for Bitcoin to exist. Then just use a centralized system, right? So when every time you increase the block size, you centralize things further because you make the network more sluggish in sort of layman's terms, and you make it harder for people to run Bitcoin in a decentralized way, right? The way I like to put it is like this. If you are not running a full node yourself, you're not doing Bitcoin. And if you don't try to run a full node in a laptop, you don't understand why it's so important to have the block size small. So we go back to incentives now. If you're a miner, especially a centralized one like Bitmain, for example, um, what do you want? You want more transactions in a block because you know Bitcoin incentives are halving. Right? So the Bitcoins being minted are being halved and halved every two years or so. So what do you want? You want more, more, more transactions per block so that it can collect more fees. It's very simple. But the difference is before Bitmain was so big, there was the, the incentive that everybody sort of understood was, you know what? I'm going to forego short-term profit with bigger blocks to look into long-term profit by having Bitcoin being fully decentralized and achieving its full potential. So imagine if, Bitcoin's, if Bitcoin blocks get so big that then you only have a few miners and a few nodes and all governments can take control over it. You destroy Bitcoin. And that's why this fight is so adamant. And that's why you have 
all the people who really understand Bitcoin are the people who call Bitcoin against bigger blocks, bigger blocks. It's actually quite clear. Now, speaking of fungibility, you bring up a very important topic, as as you just highlighted. And when we see the the all the, the call for proposals on the upcoming upcoming scaling Bitcoin conference in Stanford, one of the stronger focus or the following topics and what they want to place a stronger focus this year is fungibility. And as we know, Bitcoin right now, because of its its parameters, its its all transactions can be more or less traced. And if you identify, if you have an identifier on one transaction, you can trace all the subsequent transactions and might even uh, have an, a possibility of identifying a person or a company or somebody using the system. How is this going to be resolved or improved in Bitcoin? Okay, so so yeah, so one thing you can start doing today is run your own full node, so that when you're searching for transactions in your keys, you're searching them locally and you're not telling every single Bitcoin explorer in the world what your IP is and which Bitcoin address you're interested in. So if you're running your full node, it's already a huge plus. And if you're running your full node, just proxy through Tor on your laptop, which takes five minutes to set up. Now you have a degree of privacy that is like exponentially better. Right? So that's one thing that could be done today. Now, you can also do, you know, join markets or Tumblebit. There's ways of mixing coins that actually increases privacy substantially. And now the segregated witness was activated. You can have Lightning Networks working alongside joint markets so that you can increase it substantially more, right? Like you can do Bitcoin in a much better way that would be much harder to trace. Uh, you can make it very hard to trace. Is it impossible to trace so far? Uh, technically, it's impossible to trace, but practically it's very hard to trace, right? So, what happens now is we're gonna, you know, we have score signatures hopefully coming out soon, and uh, you're gonna be able to to create much more private transactions uh, in these new systems, um, especially with Lightning Network, because you're gonna be able to open channels and, and do a bunch of things that are private and then just settle once. Uh, but the nature of Bitcoin is pseudonym pseudonymous. So you always have some traceability. Um, that can be always um, obfuscated with uh, mixing. It's kind of how like Tor works. You know, there's a few a few layers there and that makes it effectively impossible to find you. Uh, the same can be done with Bitcoin. You, you could create layers and layers of mixing that, that will change that. Uh, especially as the noise increases by having more transactions on the network. Speaking of the Lightning Network, uh, how far do you think are we from using the Lightning Network on a daily basis? Um, it, it really is just now in the wallet. So the, if, I, if I recall, uh, Lightning is essentially ready to be used. Uh, the code base is pretty solid. It's been tested for quite a while. Um, so as soon as uh, you know, some businesses start integrating it, uh, you use it. I think initially the the actual merchant is going to end up having the Lightning wallet themselves until there are sort of like uh, intermediating parties that, that do 
all that they do is, is lightning channels. That will happen as well. It's just a matter of time. You know, when multi-sig came out, it took about a year for, you know, for, for it to be adopted. It, it takes a little bit of time. And another thing too is the, the complexity of the features are increasing, right? So the more this interesting things come out, uh, they are harder for your sort of run-of-the-mill dev to call them. So, so it does take a little longer for businesses to integrate them. This episode of Crypto Voices is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, AugurRep, and many more. This is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit Shapeshift.io and choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. I want to uh, keep on with the with the scaling debate a little bit, as uh, Fernando framed it, and I thought that your uh, initial response there was was quite interesting. I think that's very true. That um, obviously the most informed people, uh, the people that are you know most uh, care about and are pushing Bitcoin, you know, they're more technical people, developers. Uh, certainly, I'm not one of them. And it is it is hard for you know the average Joe say to uh, to wrap their head around uh, around the whole debate. What would you say? I'll say it like this. So I I um, I've said it on the show many times. Like I think that Lightning Network and Layer Two is is great, and it absolutely should come. Uh, I don't really have a strong opinion on Segwit Two X as uh, as a as a as a, an upgrade. Let's say um, because. Uh, you know, Bitcoin Cash or Bcash has already forked, and they're trying to do their thing with with just you know larger blocks over time. Uh, I guess Segwit Two X, we would see maybe if they did fork and if there was a separate coin, it'd be sort of a middle of the road one because it has Segwit and thus you know Layer Two. Okay, so let me let's let's just unpack this because there's too many there. Okay, so Segwit Two X, the the biggest issue with Segwit Two X, aside from the block size, which you can have a different opinion. The biggest issue is that, you know, a handful of people decided to go into an office in New York, sign an agreement between them and change Bitcoin. That is unacceptable. If you can have a handful of people changing Bitcoin, this project is over. There is no point. The idea is if you have a system that's fully decentralized, it should be impossible or near impossible for a few people to change it. Because today it's a bunch of business people who don't understand Bitcoin and have bad business models that are not making money who decided to change Bitcoin to fit their business model, right? To save them. So, you know, it's not the worst case scenario of people trying to change Bitcoin. But tomorrow it's a government or it's somebody else that wants to truly destroy Bitcoin or remove privacy or remove fungibility, and uh, and they would be able to if we start setting this uh, this precedence. It's it's truly unacceptable. Yeah, I get it. I I, uh, I don't have a, a beef with that, and I, I totally get uh, where people uh, say that. I guess my, my question comes comes here is 
Do you feel that there is, um, let's say, an unacceptable level of centralization in Bitcoin? And then conversely, is there an ideal level of decentralization that needs to happen for Bitcoin to continue to be successful? Um, I, I think Bitcoin should just respect the sort of the cyberpunk way, which is very, very weird for business people to understand and grasp, right? Like it's just sort of like anarchic way of running a project. And this is not new to pretty much anybody in software. <laughs> Any project that is open source essentially runs in this sort of meritocracy way that tries to just respect some form of a, either a manifesto or some, some original intent. Right. So, you know, if you want to change Linux, you, you just you can't change Linux. Right. Like a, a bunch of people are going to like get pissed off and, and start fighting you on the forums and on the mailing list and sort of not let you do it in a way that they don't believe follows its original intent. Right. So the best thing we can do to keep Bitcoin fungible and secured is having people always fighting over changing it. The adversarial environment will always show the true faces of the people trying to change it, their incentives, and the bugs and the security problems. So the more people we have trying to co-opt it, break it, and improve it, the better it is. So there is no such thing as, as sort of like an optimal governance or anything. We don't own governance. There is no such thing. If you own governance, go vote and you know use a, a, a country money. Um, Bitcoin is different and, and it's very, it's not very palatable for most people that have not been exposed to this kind of, uh, of, of, uh, of running a project. Would you say then that uh, Bitcoin Cash and Segwit2x are in the end a kind of blessing for Bitcoin? Oh, it's fantastic. And see, you know, the majority of the altcoins are scammy garbage, right? That is true. But... I am a huge believer that you need a place for people to innovate and create new things and prove ideas, right? So by all means, fork it, do whatever you want. And, and you know what? Do your best. Try to come change Bitcoin as well. You know, join the mailing list. And we have protocols. We have ways in which we can do this in a civilized manner. But if you want to kick it up a notch, you know, everybody else is going to kick it up a notch too. <laughs> Just don't. Just, just have the understanding that because you are a VC or because you are a country, uh, a government entity person, or because you experience some form of power in whatever it is that you do, you know, it's not going to translate to any form of power in how you change Bitcoin. Like, we are not interested, you know, how sort of powerful you are in your own domain. Um, if, if your changes are... If, you're, uh, if the things you want to do to Bitcoin do not follow how most people who, wrote, who write the software want to go, uh, it's not going to be changed. <laughs> Now, speaking again of decentralization and centralization, uh, this is always something very difficult to measure. So how decentralized is Bitcoin right now? Is it more decentralized or less decentralized? Which are the criteria we can use to gauge the decentralization level of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency? So it's a weird dance. You know, it's not something that you can sort of like point and say, you know, here, this is the answer, right? So you can look at nodes, for example. 
uh, nodes can be cyborg, so nodes are not fully trustable as well. You know, and then you have miners. When you have 70% of the chips for mining coming from a single guy, right, that's a terrible thing. And if he keeps on going the way it goes, then, you know, who knows, maybe we'll change the proof of work. <laughs> um, Bitcoin, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an ongoing project, so we keep on changing it. Now, a good way of measuring, uh, measuring how decentralized is, it's by, by how hard it is to make a change. That is the true sort of most like best way of doing this. If it's very, very hard to make a change on it, it means that there's too many competing interests and that's a good thing that it means it's very decentralized. If it's very easy to make a change, then we have a problem because it means it's very few people to convince, very little bit of software that has to be done. And, uh, and, and that's, that's really a problem. So the, this goes out to the to the idea that sometimes I I see in the space where people say, well, you see, Ethereum is making a change, and and Dash or any other cryptocurrency, they are finally making a change, and this shows this goes to show that we really need some a, a final decider or a body of people that can decide and impose their 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 will by force or by influence. And it seems to be this is actually not a feature, more of a bug, especially in a crypt in an open source decentralized cryptocurrency. Exactly, you know the fact that you know, um, uh, where's a dear leader Vitalik can just call and you know make a change to Ethereum is a terrible thing, terrible thing, because you know if his if his interests change or if he's under duress or whatever it is, you know they can break Ethereum. Well, Ethereum is kind of already broken anyways. But aside from that, you know, the fact that they were able to, to roll back and make an immutable blockchain mutable is, uh, is, is a disgrace. <laughs> I, will, uh, I will jump in here because I think this is, this is probably the, the most fundamental issue where Fernando and I disagree a little bit. Uh, not, not on particularly that topic, but uh, let's say currency competition or, or altcoins innovating uh, versus... Which one of you is the maximalist? <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> I will quote Fernando uh, on our show with Jeffrey. He said, uh, I, I'm sort of a Bitcoin maximalist, but not in a bad way. <laughs> That's right. And I know it, it's, uh, it's a good, we, we, uh, this is actually something that I'm very happy that we have this show and we have these, uh, this opposing view. Um, you know, obviously we'll see what happens, but I do, uh, want to ask this specifically regarding Ethereum and say regarding uh, future changes to protocols with governance, um, just with the governance. I, I don't want to defend that, that, that decision that they made with the DAO because I, I agree with you. Uh, it was, let's say, the wrong decision. Uh, on the other side, you know, this is, this is such bleeding edge technology. People are going to break things. They're going to try and experiment. You know, if we get to a state where... Uh, a blockchain, a cryptocurrency, a governance model has so much better tools. You know, I mean, they were taking Twitter polls, like they were doing, you know, mailing lists, you know, that, that, some proxy, and they thought they had, you know, 95% and turned out they had like 60 or 70%. See, this is the problem. You cannot measure cryptocurrency. You cannot see it, right? And that drives business people insane. You can't just go on Twitter and make a poll. You can't just go on Reddit. You can't, like, it doesn't work like that. You know, a huge part of the transaction of cryptocurrency is happening on things that we don't even know about, you know, through Tor and, and, and that we can't even see. So 
it, it, it truly is, um, with, with cryptocurrencies, when you make a change, you're going to find out the, the reality after you made the change and everything may break. And that's why it's so important not to change things. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a very interesting view, and I, I can respect that entirely. But I guess to finish the, the thought of what I was saying before and what I, I'm really curious about in this space is, you know, will we see, I, I guess, you know, Tezos is sort of trying to do that, although they're a completely different model. So, again, I'm happy to hear your thoughts there. But will we see, uh, if it, whether it's Bitcoin or an altcoin, a successful blockchain that has buy-in or the ability for the users to truly feel staked and it's easy to you know, run, a nose as you, run a node as you say, or to make a, a decision broad-based that everybody can say, okay, this is, a, this is a proper governance decision, or do you not see it like that? No, no, impossible. See, as soon as you show the face of who controls something, they can be co-opted, right? And that destroys the whole project. So it is important and paramount that people run nodes because nodes are the true arbitrators on consensus, right? Miners are just employees of the network. They, they have a job to do, which is just validate and make blocks, right? But the enforceability of consensus is done by nodes. So yes, users should run nodes, right? There was, uh, there was a quote, uh, I don't know if it's been verified as being Satoshi or not, and I've, I think I've quoted on Crypto Voices actually. It was apparently by Satoshi, and, and uh, they said, you know, looking back in hindsight, perhaps we should have not relied on solely altruistic reasons to run a node. Perhaps they needed a profit incentive. Do you think? Oh, no. So I, I, I think I recall that quote, but I, I think it was out of context. Um, there is a reason why you don't monetize nodes is because if you monetize nodes, then you create cyber attacks immediately. <laughs> You're essentially gonna start paying people to mess with your network. It, it, it's everybody that tried to monetize nodes realized that very fast. It's the same reason why we still won't have proof of stake for you know ages to come. It's because the, the incentives in those methods of, of uh, monetary, um, just don't work, at least not with the technology that we currently have or understand. Now, the, the, the notion of how consensus works in Bitcoin is also, I mean, the understanding of how consensus works in Bitcoin is also evolving. When, when the system started out in 2009 and then perhaps even in 2010, it seems to me that people didn't realize the importance and the different roles played by phone nodes and by miners. Now, I guess this difference is very clear-cut. But back in those days, it wasn't like this. Uh, what do you think of, this, of the distinction of the, and the different roles played by miners and full nodes back then and now? So it was understood. The only difference was back in the day was one CPU, one vote, right? Because you mine on your own computer. So the people, when that quote was sort of like put out there, the idea was that you're going to be running a full node and you're going to be mining on your computer, right? As soon as that changed, as soon as, you know, mining became sort of like a more industrial thing, um, the, 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 the system actually has ways of dealing with that, right? Miners don't get votes. The idea that miners can vote on anything or flag on anything are completely like recent tools to just avoid downtime on the network. Miners were never supposed to have an opinion at all. 
So when I think it was BIP9, I can't remember now, but uh, the idea was... It was uh, BIP9, yes. Yeah, one of the first BIPs, uh, you know, people were trying to avoid uh, any downtime on the network or any confusion. This was the early days. So what we did was, you know, like, let's add a way for miners to signal, right, that they're ready so that we can count the signals, right, and make sure that the whole network is on the same page to coordinate and then push out the update. It was never meant as a democratic tool. There is no such thing as democracy in Bitcoin. And people get very confused about that. If you want to vote on Bitcoin, run a full node and participate in code. Everybody else doesn't get an opinion. I know it sounds awful, but that's kind of how it works. <laughs> it does sound awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, if you're not participating in writing code, you don't have an opinion. <laughs> now, now, let me ask you something then. Uh, would you think, and, and it, uh, this is a two-part question and somehow related, do you think it would be important for someday uh, in, uh, for Bitcoin to introduce ASIC-resistant proof-of-work algorithms? Um, okay, so uh, Zcash tried that with Equihash. Um, and, uh, but the, the, okay, so, you know, I have a little bit of a harder background because that's what we do. Uh, I can tell you one thing is that given enough time and enough money, somebody can put together first a FPGA, which is like a programmable chip that will be substantially faster than anything else. And then given enough time, somebody's going to build an ASIC for it. Like, I, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's somebody, something else out there, uh, very likely. It's just I don't know about. But um, there's no such thing as being forever uh, ASIC resistance. Now, what's important is not making ASIC resistant. It's making miners stay on their toes. So if we explain uh, through the Bitcoin consensus to miners that if they push... Uh, if they push too hard in terms of trying to control Bitcoin, we we'll change the proof of work and then all their investments go to the garbage. Now, this is a very, I would say it's a nuclear reaction response to yes. a, to, to mining collusion, <laughs> let's say. Yep. And, and it brings all the philosophical questions about then what is Bitcoin? If we do change the proof of work algorithm, would this still be Bitcoin or not? And this brings me to another question related to the always... The issue of, well, Bitcoin, according to Satoshi, is the chain with the most proof of work done. That's, that would be the... Mm, it's more like the longest chain. Sorry? So it's more like the longest chain, not the most powerful chain. Longest in different. terms of block height or proof of work? Yes, block height. Block height. But, but if, if we say, well, okay, so before I finish the question, so okay, it's... A, According to your definition, it would be the longest chain or Satoshi's or whatever. But yep. my my view of this is some people say, well, now that if you see Bitcoin Cash, it's it has it's on a higher block height. But actually, no, it's behind. But on block height? Yeah, I think so. It's much be at least it was behind for quite I a while. I think after they had the, the the sudden drop in difficulty, they they overcame Bitcoin's block height. Sure. But my 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 view is 
it doesn't really matter if Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin is the longest chain. The thing is, mm -hmm. Satoshi's definition for the longest chain, would, would, which chain is valid is the longest, as long as they're abiding by the same rules. So Bitcoin Cash is no longer using the same rules as Bitcoin and Segwit2x wouldn't either. So that, that's the point. So, okay, so to me, like, I, I think this is this is the problem, right? Like, Bitcoin is not a religion, right? So, Satoshi, you know, is great and awesome, is thankful to this invasion, and I, as I am, you know, we, we do not take literally, you know, it's not a gospel, it's not dogma, right? So, we will work on the chain that we want to work on. So, 99% of the developers, and the work is being done on Bitcoin Core, right? So if people want to take this into something else, by all means go, but the network is going to stay with the most amount of brain. <laughs> so not right now, actually, I think maybe like the best way to look at this in the future is just like as a joke and I think totally is, you know what, it's proof of brain. <laughs> Whoever's, whichever chain has the most amount of brain power in it to maintain it, survive it, and keep it secure for the longest time to come is to me the real Bitcoin. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's a very uh, good and solid uh, way to explain it. And it, uh, I, I hope that it's helpful to our listeners, certainly helpful to me. Um, I wanted to ask you, or actually just go back to your uh, point about innovation and, and uh, forking and, and altcoins. I believe you said the majority of altcoins are scams, which I would not disagree with. Uh, are there any altcoins or alternative cryptocurrency blockchain projects which you think have any legs for the future? So I, I was actually very interested in uh, Zcash initially until they decided to put a 20% tax on, on the new minted coins. And, uh, and, and you know a few comments after where their main lead guy uh, said about you know possible backdoors and things like that. I, anyways, I lost all interest in that project, but uh, it was initially interesting. ZK snarks are an interesting technology. If that project's going to go anywhere or work, it's beyond me. Um, Litecoin is extremely interesting. Uh, we've been playing with Litecoin since the early early days because to me it was always sort of like uh, before Lightning was an idea. To me. Litecoin was like a great way of buying lattes and, and Bitcoin was a great way of settling the big transactions. So I, I kind of like the idea of having a faster block coin that's less secure, but, you know, very secure still and interesting. Um, you know, Monero is kind of cool. It, you know, it's kind of like a, a stitch together bunch of stuff that actually kind of works. Uh, I'm sure there's all kinds of, of issues with it, but as a conceptual thing is interesting. It's, it's nice to see that people are trying to make something that's hard to, that has a lot of privacy. Um, and, and, you know, Fluffy Pony is, is awesome. <laughs> his uh, his, his, uh, his uh, incentives are in the right place. Um, and then what else? Um, you know, Ethereum to me is a complete, like, uh, like a, it's a joke. Um, you know, conceptually, sure, everybody wants to make a a computer in the cloud, even though the cloud is just somebody else's computer. Um, but it never worked. It doesn't work. And, you know, it's run by what I call hand-waving technology. 
every time that, you know, there is a problem, you know, somebody of their community goes and sort of claims that they have a solution that's coming right around the corner. And, you know, it's a completely broken system leveraged by scammy ICOs. Um, so you know, it's hard to have a lot. Let, 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 me, let me ask you to elaborate on this. What would you say is the most broken part of Ethereum so then? They claim it's Turing complete and, you know, anybody in computer science understands that there's no such thing. <laughs> Uh, there is no infinite resources. Uh, you know, Ethereum has very finite resources. You know, like its uptime is pretty dodgy. Uh, you know, nodes are always about to explode the amount of memory they need. Um, the you know, the, there's a bunch of pie in the sky projects that none of them are in works. Sorry, are, are like launched or in use. Nobody uses Ethereum. You know, they they just do you know what I call a proof of press release, right? Like <laughs> every every month there is a new press release about some awesome, insane thing that is never either launched or ever, never launched, or if it's launched, it doesn't really do what they say it does. So, I mean, you know, the, the idea of making something like that is cool. Sure, awesome, go for it. Like by all means, it's just, it's not something I'm interested in because it just, you know, the, the, when they start shipping things that they claim that they do or have, then I'd be interested in. But right now, I don't. Um, you can get a lot more in the smart contract kind of place from uh, from XCP. So like from a counterparty or from uh, the other one that I forget the name now. And then there's drive chains coming. Um, the the difference is, you know, conceptually anything is possible, right? But like technically, very few things are. So. Projects that actually are in, in, you know, in the world, in the real world being used are things that I'm interested in. My question now, maybe we can turn now to, to Bitcoin Core developers. I see a lot of bashing of Bitcoin Core on Reddit, or of course Reddit, BTC and Twitter and so on. And sometimes people say they are, that Bitcoin Core development has stagnated. It seems to me a very inappropriate word to say that, that it is stagnated, but okay. But my question for you would be, what's your analysis or your, if you could review Bitcoin Core developing developers, what would be your answer? So first, you know, Bitcoin Core is not a company, is not an entity. It's, it's just a collection of people who are interested in working on it for free <laughs> to, to begin, right? So these are all volunteers. Now, they all have different incentives. Now, stagnation is such a bullshit thing that like it, it pisses off pretty much everybody because if you actually go to GitHub and you look at the commit history, it's insane. I mean, these guys are pushing out code like there's no tomorrow every day. There's a ton of stuff being done. And all those other uh, Bitcoin forks actually go and, and fork again those changes because they don't have enough people or understanding to fix those bugs themselves. So for people to say that it's such a it's such a uh, 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 it's such an evil fud way of of like of getting your point across, right? It's just simply not true, and and it's provable. You can go check out the commit now. Because this is not an entity, and this is sort of like a decentralized collective of people interested in working on it, 
if you want to change something, you can't just go and, and, and like boss people around asking to change that something. You know, you either hire some devs or, you know, try to hire a dev that already works on it and say, hey, listen, you know, I, I really want this feature. And, you know, you have to, to explain that in a bit or, or at least on the, on the mailing list. And, you know, if, if, if people don't have a problem with your idea and they think it's actually valid and great, then you have to go make it and test it. And, you know, this is, this is what, like a, what's the size of Bitcoin market cap now? It's 70 billion probably. $70 billion or so. So you can't just make a, a, a change to something that holds $70 billion to people in every country in the world. Like the things have to be tested and tested and tested and try to be broken and tested again. Otherwise people will lose money. So just expecting people to just make changes because of, you know, you want it, it, it it's not a realistic thing. I actually want to maybe challenge you on that question or, or ask uh, for, let's say, clarification, because I've heard a lot of people make that um, uh, claim, you know, that, the, that the, you, you know, that's, it's, we're talking about people's money here, you know, people's livelihoods. And I absolutely agree with that. On the other side, I'm trying to think about how you balance, you know, digitizing the financial system, uh, just innovating in so many areas that we need to innovate. Uh, perhaps that's just done in altcoins, or maybe it's done in Bitcoin side chains. But I have heard many people criticize uh, Ethereum from day one, like when it was, you know, under a dollar in terms of price. And, you know, I, I think they raised 70 or something. So it's probably $70 million market cap. You know, Ethereum is now at 28 billion. Is that, you know, is there, is there something there that they're tapping into? Or do you just think that, that that's just, it's a lot of, like you said, PR hype and they'll just never get there? It's just PR. I mean, you know, Ethereum got what thirty million dollars in in uh, financing, you know, in VC financing very early in the days. And you know, when you're talking about asset classes or you know commodities to buy and sell, right? Because you know the the market cap is a very meaningless and yet super meaningful uh, metric. Um, so you know, if you have a big PR machine, you can pump and pump and pump your your asset class or your your commodity right and and people will buy it right? look look at corn right the us decided to make corn part of the food group so <laughs> corn is a great business in the us right um so if um so so with ethereum i mean i think it's it's a big pump. I mean, the utility is not there. And, and a good way of putting this is, uh, you know, if I told you that you could only pick one to store your wealth for the next three months without touching it, would you pick Bitcoin or Ethereum to live in it? I would pick Bitcoin, absolutely. And I agree with you. That's, that to me is the, the, the biggest sort of like a decider there. You know, if you're watching Ethereum, sure, you can make a, you can make a great buck on it. But, but it's not a realistic, secure network because people can make changes at whim. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing, you know, I mean, like balancing that true wealth preservation, which, as you point out, is absolutely real and will only, I believe, become more real because I believe the interest will grow. And, you know, I think in the next, ah, whatever, I don't, we don't make predictions on this show, but we're so early. the market cap will we're grow. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. I mean, we're so, so early. I mean, Bitcoin is such a tiny little kiddie pool still you know, in the real financial markets, it's so tiny. It's a noisy one, but it's so tiny. 
I mean, a, a great other example about uh, how protocols work and how they change is uh, TCP IP, right? Especially IPv4. So TCP IP was sort of ossified way, way, way back then when the internet was something completely different, right? So even because it was good, it was reliable and it, and it simply worked, right? It's quite fascinating. I mean, the internet just works, right? So because it's a simple protocol that just works, um, it's important that it got very ossified and it was not able to be changed at whim again and again. I mean, look at us. You know, we have IPv6 and still the majority have not switched over because there's still problems with it. You know, just, just changing a protocol is a monumental thing. It's, it's kind of like changing a house foundation, right? Like you, you don't want to do a quick and easy, just let's just try something new. That's, that's why I, I, it seems to me that some people, they underestimate the risks and the complexity of doing a hard fork when you do break backwards compatibility. It's a huge thing, and, you, and even worse, right? The only thing that keeps Bitcoin together is not even the code, is incentives, right? Where are the incentives aligned correctly? This thing works. If they just sort of get out of whim just a tiny little bit, you could create major problems, right? For example, if you change so that people get paid to run nodes, you can have cyber attacks, so the incentives now are completely different, and this thing is completely broken. Or, for example, now we have miners that are centralized, so the incentive has changed slightly a bit, right? And that's the problem we're seeing right now, how bad it can be. I'm taking uh, some info, I think from, uh, I think it was a Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast, but they interviewed the CEO of BitPay, Pear, I believe his name is. And um, he said uh, something like, uh, he believes that you can pretty much do anything in Bitcoin, and that is even raising the 21 million coin limit. You can do, pretty much do anything in Bitcoin via a soft fork at the end of the day. See, that, that's exactly the problem, right? This, this is one of the top guys in the New York agreement for the 2X. You have a bunch of people that just don't understand Bitcoin. Is that so you would not agree that you could pretty much do every, anything via soft fork at the end of the day? I mean, technically you can. Technically you can change anything in Bitcoin. You can even change the name. <laughs> It's just that, you know, effectively you can't do anything because people won't go along. And this is a decentralized system that people need to go along. Yeah, I guess it was just more of a technical question. And again, uh, in line with what you were saying regarding the danger of hard forks, uh, perhaps it's it's just a solution that uh, will help in the future if, if we really can change things via soft forks and be... No, it's kind of fascinating though. I mean, a hard fork is not necessarily a bad thing. And it's not necessarily a dangerous thing either. And there is one on the roadmap as well, is there not? For yeah, no, it's a perfectly reasonable and acceptable thing to do. There's actually no danger in doing a hard fork. The only danger is when there's a contentious hard fork. <laughs> if everybody agrees to change something, it's fine. If everybody, now if you have half and half, now that's a problem. Because that would split the network. Yeah, it all goes back to the, the consensus requirement of Bitcoin. And, and this is why, and, the, and then goes my question. This is why even now regarding the SegWit2x, the New York agreement, even if we had all Bitcoin core developers supporting this implementation and agreeing that they think it's a very good idea to go along with the hard fork on November, in November. This would be a three months after SegWit activation. Even if they did agree with this and supported this, this implementation, 
even even so would be a very risky way of going because most of the phone nodes, if you see the, uh, by some statistics, at least if you see the website BitNodes by 21 Inc. It's 98%. Exactly, it's over 70 or, or 80% of phone nodes. Oh, that, no, that's just a version. That's just a version. Yeah. yeah, if you actually get all the versions of Bitcoin cores, about 95, 97% of the whole network. So even if, if you had uh, core developers agreeing with this, it would be a disaster, a, a huge disaster, because the majority of the network would just invalidate a chain mine by 95% of the miners, saying two megabytes is now the right way to go. Exactly. And, and it gets actually even more interesting. The uh, one point, sorry, 0.15, the, the new Bitcoin core coming out, uh, that I think has a release candidate already, can't remember if it just came out, but anyways, the last version of Bitcoin Core actually blocks any node that signals Segwit2x or anything that's not like it's doing a much better job in maintaining consensus correct. So um, you know, as everybody upgrades to new Bitcoin Core, because that's what you do if you want to keep your business or your coins secure, um, you know, Segwit2x is going to get kicked out. Um, it's just it's just part of how it goes. So, that, so now the, the question that I didn't make before, do you think we will have a hard fork come in November? Um, you know, your guess is good as mine. I mean, they're very noisy. They're very wheeling. Uh, it's going to be a nightmare uh, for, uh, for exchanges because, okay, so another problem is this, this group uh, just you know, decided in their minds that everybody agrees with them and that they don't want to put replay protection. So it's just an upgrade to Bitcoin, which is ludicrous. If you want to make a change to Bitcoin, then at least put replay protection so that noobs don't lose money. Uh, you know, I hope they get sued <laughs> by as many users as possible once, uh, if, if this thing does cause grief, because it's such a monumental waste of time and money. Um, now, because it doesn't have any replay protection, what happens is uh, once they, they fork it, if you make a transaction in one chain, the other chain gets confused and something else will happen in the other chain, right? Like another transaction that goes nowhere. And essentially you burn money. So it, it could be, you know, it could be very, uh, very painful. Now, at least with Bitcoin Cash, they put replay protection, and that's why people were, you know, claiming their dividends. <laughs> so people were, you know, uh, making a transaction out of their Bitcoin Cash wallet and sort of selling it and then going back to Bitcoin. Um, and, and then, you know what, like, it's very fair. You know, if you want to create a fork of Bitcoin, do it. Uh, you know, if you believe that your fork is much better, then theoretically people will just follow yours. But at least you're making sure that all the noobs don't lose their money by having replay protection. So is that the latest uh, for sure that no one has decided to put in replay protection on Segwit2x? I, I think they made it optional, which is it's, it's such a stupid thing. Yeah, I might have seen that as well. It was an opt-in. It's like, yeah. And, and, and another problem too is that, you know, they have like, I think one or two developers, right? So they, they can't even cope with all the bugs that Bitcoin Core has fixed already in the last month. That's what's that's what seems very ironic to me because we see them and supporters of uh, Bitcoin Cash or Segwit2x saying, "Well, we have to fire Bitcoin Core," and now <laughs> you see Bitcoin Cash and Segwit2x incorporating all, most of the changes on the new version 0.15. I mean, come on! 
Exactly, and and the majority of the the better, well, the majority of the developers that contribute to Bitcoin Core already have said that, you know, if if worse comes to worse, they won't even they won't they won't work on two X. This breaks the sort of the spirit of the whole thing. You know, it goes back to the thing that like you cannot have a small group of people changing Bitcoin because you know in the future won't be maybe as nice. Bitcoin development it it does rely on voluntary voluntarism by developers by people by enthusiasts on this technology. Some are on the payroll of even the MIT, so the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Some are on the payroll by some company, but some have no payroll whatsoever. So they doing this because they believe in the technology. Would you see this somehow a fragile thing to rely on voluntarism? Because if, if no, see the internet runs on voluntary software, right? The whole internet, Linux is is you know it's fully open source and and it's and FreeBSD, the same, and that's what runs in every single router of the whole internet. So, the the argument that you know open source sort of voluntary software is uh, you know like. It's more weak because it doesn't have financial backing. It's just it's just something that we know now that is that's just not the reality. What about um, chains or projects that that uh, do something different? Like I, I absolutely agree with you that open source is uh, way. To go. I mean that's obviously what Bitcoin is built on as well. But there are some chains that are trying to do things. Uh, one that I, I mentioned a few times I think is interesting. I think what they did is novel, but. Dash with their masternodes, they vote on projects, and then uh, a portion of the block reward goes to those projects. Now, I would absolutely agree there's some holes there because you're still relying on, quote, you know, sort of curators to distribute that. It's not completely like, you know, neutral. But there is something there maybe as well, which is a, a novel invention, which Bitcoin doesn't have. As, as an experiment, I agree 100%. It's great, fun, do it, right? Now, um, I just don't think it's realistically to have that as, as the expectation. So, because the, the, the issue is, is as soon as you have a point of control, right, in, this, in, their, in their instances, who decides where the money goes or who pays the checks, as soon as you have one of those things, you don't have a decentralized system anymore. And then there is no point in having a blockchain. Blockchain is the most inefficient way of storing data. Like it is simply like absurdly inefficient. It's so bad. <laughs> But it's the most amazing way of keeping something true in a decentralized system. So if you're trying to do something that's slightly centralized, just use, you know, um, just use Postgres. Postgres has proofs now. It's a great database. You don't need you don't need a blockchain. You don't need proof of work. Which is extremely expensive. For me, it seems it seems that the defining characteristic of a blockchain is how blocks are linked together through a proof of work algorithm. That's it's the for me it's the defining characteristic a proof of work, and it's actually how Satoshi himself called in the beginning. He didn't say a blockchain. He says a proof of work chain. Now. And then brings me to the question: What about proof of stake? Do you think is is a really secure way uh, of, of making a blockchain immutable? No. So right now, with 
the understanding that I have of proof of stake, uh, I don't believe it's possible with the technologies that we have now. So uh, the concept is amazing, right? But realistically, in game theory, it just breaks down immediately. Because as soon as, as, soon as you have one party, oh, okay, so here's a good example, uh, the best way of looking proof of stake. Do you know that game where you have bubbles that every time they touch another bubble, they eat the other bubble and then they become bigger? Yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a, a browser game, right? You keep on moving bubbles around, and as as they touch another bubble, they keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Sometimes they break. So, what you have with proof of stake is is just you're giving the incentive now becomes for you to become the biggest bubble so that you control the network. You're just incentivizing monopolies there and sort of like a large stakeholders, and then you become centralized again because if you have the biggest bubble, if you're, you know, if you have most of the monetary supply of a proof of stake a system, now you have power over everybody else because you could technically change something. And it's also impossible to prove who owns what. So in, in, in face value, you could look at the network, say, look how healthy it is. There's so many, you know, different owners of all the monetary supply. But it could just be obfuscation and you have somebody really sibling this thing and having the majority of the stake in the network. And then they could do, they could change to 51% essentially and they have control over the network and now they could make fake transactions. Have you seen anything offered by some of these proof of stake chains or ideas that is some, some sort of a safeguard against that happening? Or? I don't put enough time in this stuff, but, uh, but so far I, have, I haven't had something that caught my attention in a way that will say, okay, great, this is interesting. I think so far it's all sort of, you know, so far, you know, I don't want to throw water on them. Like, you know, it's like good for you for trying, right? Like, you know, still keep on trying. Hopefully you will find a way, but there is nothing right now that I feel like it's even remotely useful. We've, we've gone down such a very interesting path talking about the scaling debate. And um, we, I'd say it's probably the most technical show we've done uh, so far. Fernando and I even, uh, when we started, we, we just, you know, we're, we're keeping it very broad on some economic points about money and Bitcoin, primarily due to the fact, as you said, it is technical for the, the people that really understand it uh, under the hood, uh, our, our technologists. But at, at least for me, I, I just have one question to finish this off, and it's try to keep it as an economic question. Uh, so I, I see that the whole scaling debate was a function of two things. And, you know, correct me if, if I'm wrong or if you have a different view. But we had the, uh, the technical aspect, which was, was, was transaction malleability, some other things. And, and SegWit fixed that, and it's fixed, and I think that's great. And I really hope that Layer 2 uh, and all these things flourish. Uh, but then we had this other aspect of the debate, which to me seemed like more of an economic aspect. And that was the limit on the block size. I've mentioned this before, you know, to me, it, it doesn't, just as an observer, it doesn't seem like there's empty blocks or full blocks or big blocks or small blocks. Like the, the thing that, that really was the hiccup economically uh, was that there was a limit on the transaction throughput that uh, could happen every 10 minutes. Um, do you, would you agree with that statement or would you say it's much more and, and, and having that is much more important for other reasons like security or whatnot, but would you agree that the one megabyte uh, limit is uh, economic? So there's two ways of looking at this. So one thing is, you know, what gives Bitcoin its value, its fungibility. So that we've already discussed, right? So if we have, 
you know, if the blocks are much bigger, less fungibility, less value to the whole thing. We can agree or disagree on that, doesn't matter, but sort of like that's how I view it, right? Now, the second part is scalability in terms of throughput. So the, what's fascinating is that the argument that some of this, the big blockers have is that, oh, look, Visa, I don't know how many, you know, millions of transactions per second, right? Which makes it fascinating because, it, you know, their math is broken. So there is an actual physical limit to them, to the size of a block. It's 256 megabytes, right? So at 256 megabytes, I don't think we even get to 5% of Visa scale. So this whole point is, is, is it's such a non, it's such a non-go there, like it's such a non-argument to increase the block size to make more transactions per second. It's not the solution. We're never going to get to even close. We're, all we're going to do in the process is break Bitcoin. So if we know that increasing block size does not get us where we need to go, which we all want more throughput, we all want more transactions per second, we all want all those great things, our low fees and everything. Now, if we know that making the airplane go faster doesn't get us there, then let's not do that. Let's create a different solution to get us there. And SegWit is the initial part of that solution, right? Is SegWit the fix-all for everything? No, but it does optimize transactions, so it gives us a little bit more throughput for the next few years. I mean, look at today, I made a three Satoshi transaction that, that uh, got verified on the first block. So it is, it is improving the system. So you have that, and then you have layer two solutions that will help alleviate some of that. You know, it's very possible that one of these very smart people, much smarter than I am, will come along and say, hey, I have a great solution. Here's this other thing, it's completely unrelated, that also gives us another 20% throughput. And then another thing that comes later that, you know, th there is no such thing as, you know, as a non-technical person, I can understand people looking at this and saying, hey, common sense says, make it bigger, make it faster, it will get us there, right? That is simply not how it works. Is there any uh, anything that you'd like to update uh, our listeners uh, as we draw to a close here, Rodolfo, on... Um on your uh, current projects, current business interests, on how you, uh, how things are going for you. So we actually have uh, another project, a couple other projects we're working on. Uh, one of them is uh, it's, it's kind of like a Bitcoin box. Um, it's similar to what we used to offer as a centralized service, but we would offer as a central as a decentralized box that you just put in your own office and you run it yourself, and we have no visibility over it. Uh, we just build a tech and sell your box. <laughs> uh, you know, get, if you want to understand OpenDime, buy one and use it. it it's, it's just one of those things that becomes obvious once it's in your hand. Um, if I had to explain to you money before you ever saw money, you, you know, we would spend three days hashing it out and still be very, you know, abstract. But once you put a dollar bill in a three-year-old hand, they get it right away. <laughs> It's the same thing with Open Dime. It becomes obvious. Uh, yeah, and we have one more secret project coming that we're going to announce hopefully uh, in a few weeks. Uh, just uh, follow us on uh, if it's uh, Open at Open Dime on Twitter or or me at NVK on Twitter, and uh, and you learn about those things soon. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's a great way to wrap it up. Fernando, you have anything else? No, just a fascinating discussion, and then we can we can arrange a a, a further three hour podcast with Rodolfo. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm glad I'm glad I could answer some questions. You know, this is all uh, this is all a very complicated experiment. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, anytime you guys want, uh, you guys had great questions. Well, Rodolfo, thanks a lot for joining us. It was a pleasure talking with you, and hope to speak to you soon. All the best. Thank you very much, Rodolfo. My pleasure.